I'd like for you to keep your Bibles open to Nehemiah 8 for just a moment. In the first part of that chapter from God's Word, there's a great uh, series of thoughts about what is taking place. As the children of Israel are gathered together, there is a platform made, and the Levites begin to teach the people. Uh, There's a restoration going on, uh, a real restoration. But when you think about the background behind all the events of that, let me just tell you, the temple had been restored. Haggai and Zechariah, those great prophets, had instructed and encouraged the people to rebuild the temple. They did that. Nehemiah had returned as governor, and when he returned, there was a great sadness because the beautiful city of Jerusalem was lying in ruins. The walls were broken down, the gates were not up, and so the people of God got busy, and they restored the walls of the city of Jerusalem, but there's a problem. As you read the first part of Nehemiah chapter 8, you realize that as the people have heard the word of God preached to them, it really grabbed them in their heart because they realized we've not been living like God wants us to live. They were crying over their sins. I want you to imagine the same kind of reaction that happens on the part of a person who's committed a grievous sin, and now it's dawned on them, I have not pleased God and my soul is lost. And that kind of just tears that comes to one's eyes. That's what they're going through. But it was to be a festive feast day. And that call for joy over God's blessings. And so you look not at the sadness in the past, but you look forward to the goodness that was presented before them. Now here's the observation from Nehemiah chapter 8. They had restored the form and the function, or the form and the structure, but they still needed to reclaim the Spirit as God's people. You see, the buildings have been built. The walls have been restored, but the people were not living like and happy as if a Christian, or in their case, a child of God ought to be. Now for us, the form and the structure of the Lord's church, in my judgment, has been restored. For instance, when it comes to the organization of the Lord's church, we have elders who shepherd and watch over the flock, as we see very plainly in Acts chapter 20, beginning with verse 17 and following. We not only have elders, but we have deacons who serve within the body of our Lord. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1 talks about with the bishops and with the deacons. We have those people who are charged with preaching and teaching God's word, doing the work of an evangelist, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. The Lord's church has seen a restoration in the importance of worship. Where we gather together and we simply sing the praises of God as we have done this morning. Where we bow our heads in prayer. 
where we give as we have been prospered. And we also partake of the emblems which remind us of the body and the blood of the Lord. You see, that's been restored. The form, the structure has been. But do you realize that there is a spirit? There is an attitude that's to be a part of God's people. Just like them, they were crying and God said, no more crying. Now I want joy. I want happiness. I want the kind of attitude of my people who are now no longer living in the past, but they're progressing forward. One of the greatest passages in my judgment is found in Jeremiah chapter 6. Before the temple was destroyed, before the people were carried into captivity and the city of Jerusalem was laid siege, Jeremiah warned the people by saying, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths, where the good way is, and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. What God was saying through Jeremiah is, look back and see the right way that you ought to live. I'd suggest to you that's what we need to do as well. We need to look back and see if there are any characteristics of attitude, of spirit within the early church that ought to be within us as well. And I believe there are. This morning we're going to look at six things. We're going to just briefly touch upon each of them as we go through and talk about some of the characteristics of the spirit of the early New Testament church. We're going to talk about faith, benevolence, being unified, being zealous, being sacrificial, and being hospitable. Let's begin, first of all, with faith. The early church trusted in God in the face of some real strong trials and tribulations. Let me give you an example of you. We're just going to take our Bible. This is going to be a simple Bible study here. Notice with me Acts chapter 5, verses 40 through 42. You'll remember the church had just been established. The apostles were going about and teaching people and places, and they were meeting some very strong opposition in doing so. And by the time you get to Acts chapter 5, the apostles have been arrested now a second time. And there is a, a question on the part of the people that were ruling at that time, what are we going to do with them? Well, here's what Luke records. And they agreed with him, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily, and in the temple, and in every house... They did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Do you see the kind of faith that they had? These men have been beaten. And what did they do? They counted it an honor to be able to suffer for his name. But not only that, they kept doing what they knew was right. We need to recapture that kind of faith that says, I'm going to trust God regardless of what comes toward me. 
2 Corinthians 1 and verse 9, Paul would say, Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. That's the reason why you have people so committed was because they were so convinced that God was able to take care of them. In Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 32, going through verse 34, the writer there observes what they had endured. We're not talking about the apostles. We're not talking just about those who were evangelists. We're talking about the average member of the Lord's body. And so he recalls their former days after which they were illuminated They endured a great struggle of sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle by both reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions with those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven." These are people who had their homes ransacked because they were Christians. But they said, these are just things. What is important is my faith, my confidence, my trust in God because notice in verse 34, you have an enduring possession. And when you look at churches like those in Thessalonica, He said in chapter 1 and verse 8 of 1 Thessalonians, From you the word of the Lord is sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. Your faith is going out. You're showing people what you're doing. 2 Thessalonians 1.3 We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting Because your faith grows exceedingly along with their love. So we need to be people who try to recapture that strong, trusting faith that says whatever comes, we'll serve God. Let's talk about being benevolent. The early church were givers. And I'm not just talking about as we did just a few moments ago, as the the plate was passed and we put something within it, they were real givers. And they were doing what the Lord had taught them to do. You remember in Acts 20 and verse 35, Paul makes reference to this. He says, And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, and that he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. You see, the Lord had taught people that when it comes time to do something, you do something for people. You help people. You're benevolent toward them. And you see it in the early church. I'm amazed at the generosity that these people had. And it was all because they wanted to give. Not because some preacher preached a lesson saying, Oh, you need to be givers, givers, givers. No, it was because they were thankful of heart. You notice in Acts 2, verses 44 through 46, 
Now all who believed were together and they had all things common and sold their possessions and their goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. You see, they were the kind of people who, if, if I see your need, I'm going to take care of it. When you get over to Acts chapter 4, verses 34 through 37, you see a little bit more organization to their giving because Luke records again, now there was not anyone among them who lacked for all the, those who were possessors of land or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed as anyone had need. And then, as you read further, Luke records about Barnabas and his generosity. You see the kind of giving that says, I see a need, I'm going to try to meet that need. And then you say, I know that there are needs that I may not be aware of, and I'm going to give so that others can be able to have that in an organized way. It wasn't just those brethren at Jerusalem that did that. Whenever Paul went and established another church, those churches became givers as well. And it wasn't just the rich people who were giving either. It wasn't those who owned lands and houses and had lots. Because if you read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed upon the churches of Macedonia. He said that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. These people were suffering persecution. That's their great trial. They are described as having deep poverty. But Paul says that abounded to the riches of their liberality. They were willing to give. In fact, go on verse 3. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes and beyond their ability, they were freely willing imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift. You know, so often people have much urgency saying, what are you going to give me? These people were wanting to give. In 2 Corinthians 9, 12, and 13, he goes on to say the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, those who are Christians, but if you'll notice the latter part of verse 13, he says, For your liberal sharing with them and all men, your real givers. Number three, the Lord's church was united. The disciples were what Jesus prayed for them to be, and that is one. If you remember John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus had said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. People would be able to look at the church and see, are they standing together? Do they love one another? Do they care about one another? And then you go to John 17, verses 20 and 21. And Jesus said, I do not pray for these alone, but also those who will believe on me through their word. 
that they all may be one. Father, as you are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. I think it ought to be obvious that the Lord's church needs to be united. But when you start talking about being united, there's only one way for people to be truly united. And that is if they have a common standard, if they have a common goal, and our common standard must be the word of God, and our common goal must be to please God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, again talking about that great church at Thessalonica, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. Could we recapture that kind of spirit Restore that kind of spirit that says, we're not only going to love the brethren here, we're going to love all the brethren, wherever they are. Philippians 1 and verse 27, Paul says, I want you to hear of your affairs, the middle part of verse 27, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's what we put at the center of who we are and what we are. And when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there were problems at Corinth. And there were people who were wanting to be recognized. And there were people wanting status and priority and stuff. And Paul is trying to dispel any kind of idea like that. And he says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit were we all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, have all been made to drink in one Spirit. He said, We're all a part of this same body together. Number four zealous you see when you go back and you look at that early church you see a fervor among them to do the Lord's work there wasn't any of this conjoling of people oh will you come back to church tonight there wasn't any of this saying well folks we got to get everybody together on this there was an enthusiasm let me show you Titus chapter 1 or chapter 2 verses 11 through 14. He talks about the grace of God that has appeared and what it teaches us, how we ought to live, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. But you get to verse 14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous of good works. Something that you really want to do. Some of you will be zealous tonight to watch the Super Bowl. Some of you will be zealous for various things. God's people were zealous of good works. 
Galatians 4 verse 18, Paul said, But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always. Don't let somebody knock you down and say, Well, what are you getting so excited and so enthused about? If it's a good thing, be excited about it. One of the things that I am amazed when I look at the early New Testament church is what they did with what they had. Do you know what they had? They had feet that would go. They could be able to travel by some animal or by some ship. But they didn't have the kind of conveniences that we have. And yet, when I come to the book of Colossians chapter 1 and verse 23, I want you to listen carefully as Paul describes what they've done. He says, If you indeed continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, now listen carefully, which was preached to every creature. That's exactly what our Lord told the apostles to do, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Colossians 1 and verse 23 said, we've done that. In a generation, they did that. In Romans 10 and verse 18, but I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, their sound is gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Now, Paul would explain what prompted, what motivated, what stirred them up. He put it like this, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe to me is if I do not preach the gospel. I've got a sense of urgency. That's the zeal that that early church had and that we need to recapture. Number five is sacrificial. We live in a me generation. Everybody is asking the question, what are you going to do for me? What am I going to get out of it? Very seldom do we look and say, what, is, what do they need? God does not want his people to be self-centered, but to be thinking about the needs of other people. Let me give you a great illustration found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Paul would write, let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then from that point, he begins to explain. Here's what Jesus did. He didn't come to be served, but serve. Give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't look at this life as being all about what am I going to get, even though he was the Son of God and deserved all glory and praise and honor. We need to be the kind of people who are saying, I'm not looking for what I need out of this. What does my brother, my sister need in this? In 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 23, 
I'm just going to sort of skim through some of this. Paul said, I'm free from all men, yet I've made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. If you will notice in verse 22, to the weak I became as weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. It doesn't matter what a position a person is in in life. I need to be able to adapt to let that person know that I'm concerned about them and their needs. This spirit that doesn't say, what am I going to get out of it? What do you need? You know what happens when everybody acts with a selfless motivation of what's in the best interest? You've got a church. You don't have to worry about conflict because everybody's trying to please one another. In Luke 9 and verse 23, Jesus said, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Let him deny himself. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 and 5, if we love, Paul would say, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. You see, when you don't seek your own, you seek the benefit of the others, that's just like a husband and a wife who put the needs of the other ahead of their own. Number six, very quickly, hospitable. Being hospitable is when we open our hearts and our homes to the needs of others. And if there's anything of the ones that I have discussed up to this point that I believe that we have truly lost in our generation, this is it. There was a time, even in my lifetime, when uh, people invited other people into their homes. How many of you can remember there being a crowd of folks coming to your house? People coming to eat. People coming to enjoy fellowship with one another. And when you go to the book of Hebrews, to chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, we're reminded of a man and his wife who were very hospitable, Abraham and Sarah, let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. You see, the men that came to visit Abraham and Sarah were on their way to rescue Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah. Didn't realize they were angels, but let's provide for them. Let's see to their needs. In 1 Peter 4, verse 9, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. In other words, you give, you open yourself, but everybody says, oh, if I open myself up, somebody's going to take advantage of me. We go back to that me, me, me thing. Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. Then he also said to him who invited him, when you have a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors, lest they invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. 
You see this opening of our doors, our hearts, toward those who are in need. In Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be kindly affectioned to one another with brotherly love, and honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. You know what, if you look at those few verses, that really just encaptured the whole lesson. The whole lesson. You see, we can restore the form of the church without restoring its function. We can have the organization, we can have the right plan of salvation, we can be worshiping according to the pattern that is found in the scriptures but there's got to be heart there's got to be that right spirit in 1 Peter 2 verse 9 but you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood a holy nation his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The question that I end with, are you a part of this great body of God's people? If you're not a Christian this morning, here's what you need to do. You need to think carefully about where you're going to spend eternity. And if you know what you need to do and you have the right motivation of heart, we're going to have an opportunity when we sing the invitation song that you can come forward and say, I want to be baptized for the remission of my sins. And we'll do that. We'll stop everything else. And we'll enjoy the privilege of seeing a new brother or a new sister in Christ. If you are a Christian and you're looking at your life and you recognize, you know what, I'm not living right. I'm not serving God as I ought. Why not be restored this morning? Would you not come as we stand and sing?